Hey, this is Kyle Eidelman from Southeast Christian Church, and I'm going to thank you for listening to the message today. As we open up the scriptures together, I pray that this message inspires you, challenges you, and is the right word at just the right time in your life. Enjoy the message. And Lord, we just want to let you know we love you. And we bring our brokenness to you, we bring our doubts to you, we bring our joys to you, and we just declare that you are our God. And we know you are the source of life, of joy, of comfort, of hope. And God, I pray that you be that to all of us, join together at all of our campuses today in this moment. We worship you because you are not just God, but you are our God. And we love you, Lord. I do pray right now that you will open our hearts and our minds to your word, that you will teach us something helpful, convicting, and useful to live the life you want us to. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You can grab a seat. I believe it was two weeks ago, I was traveling out of town. I had with me my 10-year-old son, and he, it was on a Sunday. He had not been able to attend one of our Thursday night services with me that week. So on Sunday afternoon in the hotel room, while I was watching football, he was next to me in bed with the laptop open, headphones on, watching SE Online to catch up on what he missed at church that day. And I see him out of the corner of my eye, kind of watching worship and the sermon. And then several minutes later, he just starts giggling this big belly laugh. I said, Declan, what's so funny? He said, Dad, you've got to see this. He rewinds it. And before I show you the clip, you have to understand that his 12-year-old brother is the biggest Ravens fan ever. He, every Sunday, wants to wear, no matter what campus we are at, his Lamar Jackson Ravens number eight jersey to church to to let everybody know I was born in Maryland. I am Lamar's number one fan more than all y'all. And that Sunday was no different because as Declan was watching SE Online, Stephen Percelli, our online campus pastor, is giving like a real serious moment saying our elders and deacons want to pray for you. (laughs) When my son goes college game day with SE Online. And in case we're not clear, no matter which campus we're broadcasting from, don't bring your signs or your jerseys. We're going to leave it to church stuff and just leave it at that. But I loved that picture as it relates to a series we just concluded based on Romans 1.17. If you don't remember, that verse says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it's the power of God to save. And my 12-year-old wants everybody to know, hey, I'm unashamed. Like, I'm a Ravens fan through and through. And I just love that picture that we are supposed to have, according to Romans, that when the love of Christ infects us, we are unashamed. We will actually be the opposite of ashamed and do whatever it takes to let everybody know, hey, I'm with Christ because he's with me. And then after Romans 1.17, if you read ahead in Romans chapter 1 of the Bible, you come to Romans 1 verse 25, which is the theme verse for the current series we're going to launch today. It says, they traded the truth about God for a lie. This series builds upon the last, and if I could connect them in one sentence, it would be this. Living unashamed means living in truth. Living unashamed means living in truth. 
So in order to live out the truth of what God says, we're gonna spend several weeks together as a church family addressing some lies. Romans is going to address some lies that we often embrace. You know, when Jesus talks about Satan, he calls him the father of lies. Meaning Satan wants you to believe a lie and Satan wants you to live a lie. So Jesus comes along and says, I'm the truth and the truth will set you free. Because when you live a lie, you know this, it only brings destruction to you and people around you. You're seeing one of those lists of old remedies that doctors used to believe were actually healthy, but now we know are actually destructive. I'll remind you of some of these you may have heard of. Uh, for toothaches, they used to give you cocaine. <laughs> About 200 years ago, if you passed out, they thought the fluid levels in your body were off, so they would just cut you and let you bleed because they thought you had too much blood. That'd make you feel better. For mental maladies, they thought you just had too much pressure on your skull, so they said, oh, just drill a hole in the skull. That'll make them feel better. That's what they did. Cough medicine used to be made of heroin, and people used to believe essential oils helped with colds. But if you believe a lie... I kid. If you believe a lie, it'll hurt you. Satan is the father of lies. Jesus is the truth. So in this section of Romans that we're going to study is going to help us recognize the lies we believe and choose truth over those lies. Today, we're going to tackle selfishness. And you don't have to look very far in our culture to know that selfishness is an epidemic. It's everywhere you look. In fact, there was a viral story maybe two months ago I saw in the news, you may have seen this, where a guy I think was pretty selfish. He wanted to do some experiment to see if he could accomplish uh, cooking a meal on an airplane. So he documented this online, how he brought some frozen shrimp, some instant potatoes, some type of heating component. He then went to the laboratory mid-flight, filled the sink up with water, heated it up, oh yeah, he cooked his shrimp, cooked his instant potatoes. Then amidst all his planning, he had forgotten something to eat it on and with. So he used the barf bag from the seat pocket in front of him, put the food in there and ate it with his hand. I have so many questions. Mainly, why? <laughs> Can you imagine being the person who uses the restroom after him or who's sitting next to him while he's eating out of the barf bag? <laughs> but what is that? It's just wanting attention. It's just being selfish. But here's what I know. People will go to any extreme to satisfy their appetite. And not just with food, with success, with how they look in front of others, with how well liked they are, their appetite to win, their appetite for a high, their appetite for sex, their appetite to forget. Sin leads us to do what we want without regard to anyone else. In other words, we're selfish. In other words, the word the Bible uses for it is sin. The problem is it's not just people out there going viral who are selfish, it's me. The Apostle Paul said it this way, I am the worst of sinners. Another great theologian, Taylor Swift, put it this way, I'm the problem, it's me. <laughs> and what I find myself doing, what we find ourselves doing is I put me first. We choose selfishness over anything else. Sin at its essence is saying, I know better than God. It's why Ignatius of Loyola, who was a Christian a long time ago, defined sin as an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. So good. Because Satan is trying to deceive us, 
Because we have the choice of truth versus lies, because Jesus says the truth will set you free, we're gonna dive into two verses of Romans today. The reason we need this truth is because when we try to live by our selfish desires, our life is kinda like we're eating instant potatoes and frozen shrimp out of a barf bag. It may fill us up, but it won't satisfy. So here's our scripture for today, Romans 1, verses 18 and 19. But God shows his anger, and we'll come back to that phrase, from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he's made it obvious to them. First phrase I wanna tackle here is this phrase, suppress the truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. So when we suppress the truth, we're suppressing Jesus. We're suppressing God. The way I wanna talk about this is I wanna give you what I believe are the four most common lies we believe about God. Number one is God doesn't care. Sometimes we act like God is this app I heard about not too long ago. This app is called Got This Thing. And you download it, it uses your geolocation to find other events going on around you, wherever you are, so that if somebody asks you to do something that you don't wanna do, you can just pull up your phone, show them, and it'll populate events that you have no intention of going to, but that are actually happening in real life, so you can lie to them and use this as your excuse. So somebody says, um, hey, can you help me move on Saturday morning? You can just pull up your app and say, oh man, local dog walking club on Saturday, can't do it, man. Hey, best of luck to you." It even has an emergency ghosting button on the app, apparently. I don't use this app, just so we're clear. I just read about it. But it has an emergency ghosting app that if some conversation is boring you to tears, you can just kind of click it beneath the table, a fake notification will come and say, oh my goodness, I completely forgot I have an appointment. I gotta go, see ya. Have a nice life. But sometimes we act as if that's what God is like. Like right when we need him, it's as if God says, oh, I got something else, sorry and God doesn't care. It's when you pray for that one thing, maybe that job promotion, you don't get it, it feels like God doesn't care. It's after a tragedy you experience where if you were God, you would have prevented it, you say God doesn't care. It's anytime we say, if I were God, I'd do things differently because I care about this and God didn't do anything, so obviously God doesn't care about this. I feel this at a lot of funerals, whether I'm attending or uh, performing them, when I see the life of a righteous person who's honestly trying to follow Christ. I say, God, really, this person? The challenge here is we set aside the wisdom of God. We set aside the providence of God. We pretend that we are all-knowing, and when we repeat this lie, we're literally saying that the entire universe should be formed around this one particular experience. And listen, I get it. I know the pain is suffocating. And the loneliness is oppressive. And the confusion is so thick. And it may feel like God doesn't care. Because it feels like Good Friday. It feels like the Son of God just hung on a cross and got thrown in a tomb. And it feels like that's the end of the story. But remember 1 Peter 5, 7 that says very simply, He cares for you. Lie number two we tell is this, God's not fun. The time we typically say this is when God is telling us not to do something we want to do. And frankly, the most of the time, the areas this involves money or sex. In fact, the number one complaint that I receive church-wide, not just one campus, about our student ministry is, why do we talk about pornography so much? Well, it's because most people are looking at it 
And it's also because it's so destructive. And deeper than that, the thing that makes you not really wanna talk about it is your sin nature. So even if porn isn't your thing that makes you so annoyed when our student ministers talk about porn is that somebody else is being told not to do whatever they feel is good and you wanna be able to do whatever you think feels good even if it's not that. So you don't want anybody telling somebody what they should or shouldn't do because you wanna do whatever you wanna do. It's why you push back internally whenever there's a sermon on tithing. It's why you cringe when you hear the phrase spiritual disciplines. It's, when, it's why you don't like it when you face anything that God asks you to do that goes against your momentary feelings. But the reality is that what may not sound fun in the short term is actually better in the long term. Listen, in the short term, porn is fun and feels good. In the long term, it's destructive. It will hurt your physical sex life. It takes advantage of others. It will kill intimacy. When God asks us to suppress desires or tame our instincts, it's because he loves us. It's the same reason a parent tells a kid, you can't have french fries every meal the rest of your life. That tastes good, that'd be fun. They'll kill you. So remember, in John 10, 10, Jesus says, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. I love the message paraphrase. I came so they can have real and eternal life, more and better life than they ever dreamed of. It's good. Here's line number three, God's mean. This is when God tells you something you don't want to do, like forgive, have the baby, stay in the marriage, repent. It just comes off as burdensome. And again, why does God want to force you to do things you don't want to do? Why is he asking me to reconcile when they're the one who's wrong? Why is he asking me to be humble when they're the one who's arrogant? Why do I have to turn the other cheek? Why do I have to pray for my enemies? It can feel at times like the things God asks us to do are downright mean, like, God, do you want me to be miserable? I'll take the marriage one, for example. God calls you to be faithful in your marriage. But when things are bad, like so bad you see no prospect of them ever getting better, it is really hard to not get bitter towards God and feel like he's putting you in a prison with a life sentence. And you can come to church and hear about choosing joy and suffering, you can read a great scripture about how marriage is a picture of Christ and the church, but when you think of your desires that aren't being met, it sure seems like God is mean. So remember, God is always more concerned about who you are than what you do. And I'll read a hard scripture to you, Hebrews 12. Don't give up when the Lord corrects you. Don't give up. Why? For the Lord disciplines those he loves. God's treating you as his children. God's discipline is always good for us so that we might share in his holiness. No discipline's enjoyable while it's happening. It's painful. But afterward, there will be a peaceful harvest of right living. Here's line number four. God doesn't keep his promises. You can do a quick thumb through the Bible. You can do a quick Google search and find some amazing promises of God. Like, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. And God did a, give us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Or, or I will give you peace of mind. Or come to me if you're weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. That sounds great. But when your failings crash into those promises, it leaves us asking sometimes, really, God? Really, God? Because I don't really seem to have peace of mind right now. Really, God, because I don't seem to have self-discipline. Really, God, because I don't feel that rest you promise. And we churn on it, and the voice gets louder, and the lie grows deeper. And if we meditate on a lie, our faith becomes distant, if not gone altogether. 
So remember 2 Peter 3. You must not forget this one thing. You must not forget. A day is like a thousand years the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not really being slow about his promise. He's being patient for your sake. Go back to Romans 1, though. It talked about suppressing the truth, and it talks about how we do it. It says we suppress the truth by our wickedness. Now, wickedness is a pretty strong word, right? Like, I don't like to think of myself as wicked, but here's what it means. It means we intentionally overlook what is good. We intentionally ignore what's true. God's made it obvious what's true, but we are wicked, we are evil, we're sinful. I put me first, my feelings first, my desires first. And when I put my desires first, I suppress the truth, I hold it back. I choose selfishness instead of what God made self-evident, and that's dangerous. In fact, this word suppress means to hold back or to arrest. You're preventing something from happening. So how do people do that? Well, the number one lie we tell isn't about God. I believe the number one lie we tell is actually about ourselves. I'm gonna show you something from the last chapter of the Bible. It's Revelation chapter 22, and it's this beautiful vision of heaven, but then it gives this little side note about what's going on outside of heaven. Here's what it says, Revelation 22:15. Outside the city, and this is the new heavens and new earth, this is the city of Jerusalem, this is heaven, are the dogs, the sorcerers, Sexually immoral, murderers, idol worshippers, like a pretty bad list, right? We don't want to be those people. And look at this, all who love to live a lie. That's a powerful phrase. In fact, please understand what I'm saying. I think in a healthy way, that phrase should scare us because this is the temptation is to live a lie and to love it. When I talk to people about the gospel, like explaining the gospel from scratch, whether I'm talking to one person or a group of people, I have changed over the years how I do that. Because what I used to do is I used to think, well, if you need a savior, first I need to convince you you're a sinner. And I had all these arguments to prove to people why they are sinners. And they were arguments from nature and arguments from philosophy and arguments uh, from theology. I just had everything. But the longer I've done this, I've just realized I don't need to convince you you're a sinner anymore. And here's why. You know. You know you're selfish. You never have to open the Bible or been in church ever. And you know you put you first. You know you want to be your own God. And the last thing you want is someone else calling the shots for you. In other words, we all have a pull in us to love to live a lie. One psychologist said it this way, don't leave unwanted things in the fog, meaning you know there's something there, but it's ugly and it's messy and it'd be hard to deal with. So the easier way out is just to ignore it, pretend it's not there and choose to live a lie. Looking at Romans again, it says they know the truth. He's made it obvious. God made the truth obvious, but we push it back in the fog, pretend it's not there, and just want to go about our own selfish way. I love this quote from Dostoevsky. He said, above all, do not lie to yourself or you will lose the ability to love. Here's what I think he's getting at is the second greatest commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. But if you choose to live a lie, how can you love anyone? Because you would just want them to live a lie. 
That's not helpful. Don't lie to yourself. Here are some of the most common lies we tell ourselves. I can't. I can't get out of debt. I can't break the addiction. I can't say no to fast food. I can't change. I will. I will finish college one day, just not now. I will call them, just need to think about it. I will put Jesus first, just got to date around first. I am. I am resisting temptation as best I can. I am disciplining my child every time she talks back. I am initiating healthy relationships. Listen to me. This is where the deepest and most powerful, dealing with this is where the deepest and most powerful type of spiritual growth occurs. Where you acknowledge the lie you love to live and say, God, it may hurt, but I want you to flood with your light the darkest corners of my soul and free me from the lies I love to live so I can walk in your truth and grace. The one I say on here is I am. I typically say it like this, I am trying my best. The biggest lie I, Carl, enjoy believing is that I've given my best effort and it can be with working out, writing, eating healthy, parenting, pursuing purity, stretching my mind, showing kindness, you name it. I love convincing myself that I am trying my best. I am very good at rationalizing why the effort I gave was 100%. And I try to tell myself this lie all the time because if I can convince myself I gave my all, then if it goes south, I don't have to worry about the bad consequences that come of it. After all, it's the best I could do. But it's a lie. Very rarely do I give 100% the full best effort I am capable of. Here's why. Because that's exhausting. It's hard. It's not fun. So I choose to lie and I'm lazy. And this is what we do. We say, I can't change in how I treat people. I can't handle money any better than that. I can't be more kind to the customers. I will be more patient with my kids, just let them mature a little bit more first. I will eat healthy, just need to get through the holidays. I will start fasting, just have all these work meetings. I am working on my marriage. I am giving my best efforts. I am gentle. We recognize I'm the worst of sinners. And it just feels like I can't help sometimes but suppress the truth by my wickedness. I know right about now you're thinking, man, I'm so glad I came to church today so Romans could just fill me up and encourage me. This is great. Don't worry, we're gonna get to hope. But before we do, or as we transition to hope, I wanna show you this one phrase I said we would come back to. At the beginning of the verse, it says, God shows his anger. Now, this sounds bad. I wanna show you why you're actually glad about this, why you actually long and hope for this. And another translation you may have read says, it's God's wrath, which maybe sounds even worse, but this is a good thing. That word anger, orge, means to slowly swell before bursting. Meaning, it's not an instantaneous flip of the switch where God just loses his temper. It takes time to build. It's why the other scripture says, uh, God is slow to anger, abounding in love. But I wanna explain this by showing you what the Old Testament prophet Nahum said about God's anger. The Lord is a jealous God filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great. And here's the phrase, he never lets the guilty 
go unpunished. That's really important. It's a real key to God's anger because when you hear God's anger, please don't think of a parent losing their temper irrationally. Don't think of that bad marriage fight you had where you threw daggers and knew you're gonna have to apologize for it at some point. Don't think abusive relationship. Holy anger, as opposed to those things, is part of righteous character. Because think about this, in order to be a good parent, you, to be a good person, you must have anger against what is not good. And as a parent, if I love my child, if someone is trying to seduce them or kidnap them or physically harm them, I will be angry with a holy, righteous anger against that person that is rooted in love for my child. And because God is righteous, he never lets the guilty go unpunished. See, we long as Christians for that day of no more tears or crying or pain where those things are gone forever. And the reason they're gone forever is because God's righteous and holy, perfect judgment beyond anything we could assume would be just has been executed and there is no injustice for which we will need to cry any longer. We long for God's anger because we long for things to be made right. And again, if your version of anger is a parent losing control and smashing things against the wall, that is the opposite of God's anger because God's anger is perfectly in control and perfectly just. And if you're thinking, well, I don't want to experience God's anger. You don't have to. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus on the cross, on the sin that angers God that you committed and represents who you are. And so if you come to Jesus in humility, you will give him your sin upon which God's wrath will be poured out and he gives you his perfection, his righteousness, his holiness. So there's lies we tell about God. We lie to ourselves. We suppress the truth. What are we left to do? Well, by my estimation, there's two things and we have a choice. Number one is we can continue to live a lie. Some of you will remember that old movie, The Matrix. And there's that scene where the guy who'd been one of the good guys is in the fake world and he's eating steak. He holds up a piece of the steak and he says, I know this steak isn't real. But then he goes on to express after years of the grind and things not getting better, I've just said that ignorance is bliss. And in a demonstration that he wants to live a lie forever, he eats the steak. We can keep lying to ourselves even though we know. We can keep on lying and just go where it leads and we'll end up at Revelation 22:15 that says outside the city with the dogs are those who love to live a lie. Now, what's the other option? Well, this is Revelation 22:15. I want to show you the verse before this, Revelation 22:14. It says, "Blessed are those who wash their robes. They'll be permitted to enter through the gates of the city." and eat the fruit from the tree of life. So the city is heaven. And when you eat from the tree of life, that's eternal life. We want heaven, eternal life. How do we get that? Well, we have to have our robes washed. What does that mean? I don't have a robe. There's only two times in scripture. It talks about washing of robes. One is Revelation 22 to see the other time. And what this is talking about, we have to go back to Revelation chapter seven. Look at this. He says, after this, there's another vision of heaven. I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. I mean, God's worship service goes on. They were clothed in white robes. Then a voice said, these are the ones who washed their robes in the blood of the lamb. See what this means. And this is so beautiful is you have a choice. 
You can't, Revelation 22, love to live a lie. But you'll end up outside the city with the dogs. Or, Revelation 7, you can wash your sin-stained garments in the blood of the Lamb, in the grace and truth of Jesus, and become white as snow. The father of lies tries to convince you God doesn't care, that God's mean, that he's not fun, that he doesn't keep his promises. But in the battle of truth versus lies, Jesus said, I am the truth, and he backed up the claim by being raised from the dead on the third day. When Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied on the cross so that you never have to experience, but you can have your sin-stained garments washed clean and be white as snow. And in the battle of truth versus lies, we can trade lies for life. I love that old story, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. It talks about in the land of Narnia, it was always winter, but never Christmas. Cold and evil had just gripped the land and everything in it. The white witch had control and she exacted vengeance on all her enemies who crossed her whatsoever. But there became a rumor that got spread among the creatures of Narnia that went like this, Aslan is on the move. The king has returned. And in my favorite scene of that story, they end up in the courtyard of the palace of the castle of the white witch. And there are all these stone statues of different creatures, but they aren't just statues. They were real life creatures who had crossed the witch and she had used a spell to turn them into stone forever. The main character, Lucy, even sees her friend, Mr. Tumnus the Fawn, who had befriended her and gone against his orders and not betrayed Lucy to the witch. And therefore he was turned into stone as well. She sees him and she begins to cry. As she's crying over Mr. Tumnus the fawn, out of the corner of her eye, she sees Aslan the lion go over to the one of the statues and breathe on it. <sighs> then he goes to another statue. <sighs> and a third. <sighs> and does this over and over. Lucy is very curious about this, but then C.S. Lewis describes, if you've ever seen a sheet of paper, he says, that's been lit on fire on one end, and it's just a sliver of light, but very slowly that sliver covers the entire sheet. He said, that's what it was like, where at the breath of the king, there was a sliver of light on these stone statues, and ever so slowly, it spread as what was once stone was resurrected to new life and the king had won. I don't know what condition your soul is in, but scripture says if you have a heart of stone, God will replace it with a heart of flesh. And we don't want you to live a lie because it's gonna destroy you and everybody around you. Jesus says the truth will set you free. So if you want true life, give your life to Jesus. Choose faith. Repent, be baptized, and begin doing the hard work on the deep corners of darkness in your soul to let the light of Christ shine so you can walk in his grace and truth. Let's pray. Father in heaven, it is, I'll just say not fun to talk about the wrath of God 
the anger of God, but at the same time, it overwhelms us with gratitude and humility that you poured it out on your son and not us. Jesus, that's a gift we do not deserve. We could never deserve it. We can't earn it once we've got it. And so we say, thank you. Thank you for grace. Thank you for life. Thank you for joy. Thank you for endless second chances, all because of Jesus. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If today's message made you realize you need to take your next step with Jesus, we would love to help you with that. You can connect with us on any of our social media platforms throughout the week or visit our website at southeastchristian.org. And if you want to hear more content like this, you can check out our sermons podcast or our one at a time podcast. Both can be found everywhere. Podcasts are available. Have a great week.